gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's a Hello and welcome to another episode of Fighting in the War Room. This is episode 45, the review segment for, uh, what day is it? October 24th, 2014. Uh, today, Ebola day one. Ebola day one, yeah. Where's patient zero? I guess he's not patient zero. New York, it's now, Ebola is now in New York, so David and I are very frightened. Yeah. Uh, but we're still talking about movies. We're talking about the <laughs> it's going to do that to the bitter life. end. Yeah. Ebola can't stop that until, you know, it's uh, slowly... Making my organs you fail, and then it, it'll be difficult. All over a movie when you have the Ebola virus. <laughs> do not touch that film after I do that. Uh, but we're still okay right now, and we're going to talk about Birdman, a movie that I guess came out last week, but it's slowly rolling out into more and more theaters. A theater near you, probably. Yeah, we'll be hearing about this movie one way or the other endlessly. So we'll definitely talk about it again on the podcast because I'm sure Katie and Dave will have comments too as as it reaches them and becomes part of the Oscar conversation, which it inevitably will be because this is a uh, a tour de force, if you will, for director uh, Alejandro Inaratu. Um, do you want to talk about what this movie is about, David? Uh, it would be an honor and a pleasure, Patches. Uh, Birdman is a film about an actor named – he's got a silly name. What's it? Riggin Thompson. Riggin. Well, it's a real action star. He is an action star. Right, right. He, and he is a, uh, a former action star. He is famous in the world of this movie for having – he's essentially – although Michael Keaton will bizarrely deny this if, uh, if you, as he has in interviews. But he's essentially a thinly veiled version of Michael Keaton, at least career-wise. He is known for playing this character called Birdman who's a lot like Batman. And he was in three different – Birdman movies uh, and did not do a fourth one. Even he was everyone... only in two Batman only... movies, so right, it's right, completely right. different. Completely different. And uh, he is now when the film begins. He is Michael Keaton's age, more or less, and kind of where Michael Keaton is in his career. He's on. He's doing a show on Broadway. It is a uh, rather silly. Uh, a very heavy-handed adaptation of Raymond Carver works uh, that he is directing and starring in and maybe even producing. I don't know. Uh, and he is going through something of a midlife crisis. And the movie really there, – there are all sorts of ways to present this plot. But essentially uh, – and this is one of those movies that's really defined by its telling rather than – uh, the action, the, the plot, to, so to speak. But uh, yeah, the, the story really kicks into gear when a ceiling light, one of the theater lights, falls on the worst actor in Keaton's cast, uh, perhaps caused by Keaton himself, it's hard to say. And he is forced to scramble for a replacement. He turns to a difficult but very uh, engaging superstar of the local theater scene. He's played by Ed Norton. And uh, is there stuff with his daughter involved? I mean, really, what you have to know about this movie is that it, it's oh, – man, there's a lot. Uh, you know what? I'll let Pat just pick up the next thing. But I will say that it's uh, – it's, um, I think that's the setup. Yeah. Yeah, I don't that's think, the setup. I'm not sure what you're alluding to by picking up the next thing because well, you have I Naomi think, Watts in the cast right. as more actors. And they're basically trying to stage this adaptation 
uh, and everything is going wrong. And, uh, you know, the other week we were talking about Noises Off, or I mentioned Noises Off, and I think of this movie a lot like that. It's kind of, it's a romp in a, a lot of ways, just like, because it's all shot as if it is one continuous take going around the backstage of the theater and onto stage and into performances where time is played with fast and loose. And, uh, yeah, it can be very silly at times. It's supposed yes. to be a comedy. And um, it's so the main with- the main conceit for the, the approach to this story is that it gives the appearance for the most part, aside from the first shot of the film and and a coda of being entirely contained within one shot. And, you know, the movie isn't especially concerned if you know that to not be the case. Uh, this is not done with the fidelity of something like Russian arc. It is more like rope where the shots are seamlessly woven together with the here, unlike in rope with the benefit of digital technology. Uh, it's shot by Emmanuel Lubezki, uh, you know, who shot gravity and children of men and other, of other very innovative films. Uh, and you know, you could go on and on and on about how incredible it is that they were able to light a film that moves like this um, and how intricately choreographed it is with people's entrances and exits and what it, you know, whenever you have long takes, let alone long takes compounded by long takes, it asks all sorts of fascinating questions about film time uh, and things of that nature. But yeah, this is really, it's, it's, there are ellipses in the story. Like they'll, the camera will pan and you'll understand by virtue of what's happening in the shot that several hours or, or day or whatever has like day elapsed. Day turns to night, night turns to day. Everything right. is changing in front of your eyes. Time it's very passes. slippery. And but it's, there, are, uh, there are moments too where you're hovering through a hallway and yes. following Michael Keaton and then all of a sudden you kind of go over the rail and there Michael Keaton is performing the play. So Right. And uh, it is – right. So I mean, the movie the – movie, to that end you know, is very – it never allows you to forget that you're watching a movie, nor does it intend to. I mean, uh, something that Richard Brody alludes to in his review sort of about Bazan and the myth of total cinema and how the idea of going for verisimilitude often has the paradoxical effect of um, making people more aware they're watching a movie. I think this movie does never want you to forget how you're engaging with the, the arts. Um, and it's really what it's about, is it, to me at least, is, is a story about people – He's a very narcissistic and, and anxious actor. Uh, and the, the movie is about or Michael Reagan, Keaton. Reagan. <laughs> and the movie is very much about finding your own value, discovering what significance in this world means to you. Um, I think we'll, we'll get to the, the quality assessment in a second. But I, yeah, the, <laughs> the way that the story is told, the fluidity with which it's told, how everybody is sort of enveloped into the same tapestry it's clearly a projection of michael keaton's character he he has magic powers probably similar to those that the birdman character had uh he opens the movie floating in his dressing room and it goes from there um there's one neat sequence where they just give the audience what they want and concede to uh, blockbuster theatrics um you know it's so it's very much from his perspective but everybody everybody in the movie everybody that floats into his world is wrestling with their own questions of their own value as well well i think that's what i like about the movie throwing out i think they throw out ideas and questions and personalities the same way they do special effects this is kind of a superhero movie or kind of a blockbuster um i found it viscerally pleasurable in the same way i would find gravity uh, the other emmanuel lebeski kind of continuous shot movie uh i i think it's blockbuster in nature in that the themes for me don't go very far. The questions it asks are kind of surface level, and 
obvious. It's the, it's the performances that really enhance things. It's the filmmaking, the craft that really takes you along for a ride. It's this amazing soundtrack, um, this kind of percussive, jazzy uh, drums that keep the whole thing, the momentum moving from beginning to end. And it kind of riffs on that, too. The whole movie is just about the adrenaline rush of putting on this play, of being really confused and chaotic and lost in your own creative path. And the mm-hmm. jazz element amplifies that. I like and, what you say about the mimicking the, the feeling of putting on a play because uh, better than, than any movie I can remember, um, and I don't think the movie would be satisfied with this being its only you know, it, this was, certainly wasn't its only goal, but better, better than any movie I can remember, it does, as Patch has said, give you that feeling of this high wire act of being on stage. I mean, you feel in any long shot when you see all the different moving pieces or long take rather, you you feel the intricacy of how they're doing it. You, you, you feel to an extent how the actors and the technicians and the crew and everybody must have been on pins and needles hoping they don't fuck up uh, in the same way that. You know, when you're standing in the wings of a show that you've directed or even when you're in the audience watching it and you get that sort of anxiety about hoping right. the actors don't forget their lines. You feel that really palpably in this movie regardless of its other virtues or flaws. That's I true. Think, I think that also vindicates this kind of microcosm feeling that uh, Inarantu is going for backstage and why all these messy relationships and this melodrama can unfold and it be palpable. You know, uh, people are hooking up with each other or people are, are – getting pregnant or dying or, you know, thinking about suicide and all of these really big emotions. But it all seems to make sense backstage at a play. I think the the rule of thumb back in high school theater was like, oh, you got to hook up with the actresses. All the <laughs> actors and actresses are just hooking up at theater. And that's that's what the older yeah. theater students tell you. I mean, it's definitely true. There are a lot of things that I that didn't bother me about incidents that happened in this movie and their grandiosity explicitly because it is uh, in the world of, of the theater and the backstage and, and it really captures that really strongly. I think uh, if this movie were set almost anywhere else, even on a film set, really uh, a lot of its choices, which, and this is sort of a silly question because so the movie is so, you know, inextricably ingrained in the idea of the theater, but it wouldn't exist beyond that. I think it's central to its, it's conceit. Um, but Do you there think is we get something more out of this movie because we're New Yorkers or because we it feels <laughs> well, like a very New York movie to me. Yeah, I mean, it feels maybe as much of a New York movie can for a movie that never leaves Times Square. I mean, so much of it is set in the St. James Theater, which is where uh, I don't know, our audience might know it uh, as the theater where Rent uh, was staged for a number of years. Um, it, really? I all, thought that was the yeah. Nederlander. Oh, maybe it was the Nederlander. Fuck. All right. Fine. Um, I just trounced you in yeah. Well, I, trivia. You know what? I, I will. I will happily concede <laughs> rent knowledge to someone else. Uh, anyway, the Saint James Theater. That was where the producers was. No, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Probably. I think so. Anyway, I've been there. I think. Anyway, the so it's all in Times Square. It does the, the attitudes of it. Yeah, I do. I, I don't really think it goes in the pantheon of great New York movies. I don't think, uh, you know, <laughs> to quote, uh, uh, what was that movie? Uh, the the comedy with Paul Rudd and uh, did the David Wade movie from earlier this year? The comedy, New York, a character. Oh, 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 oh uh, the rom com. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, 
God damn it. <laughs> we both like this movie. Oh, uh, we came together. We, we came, came together. together. Yeah, they came together. They came together. Uh, it, New York a character. Is, yeah, New York is a character in this movie, but it is not a major character. Um, there is one great moment, which you've seen in the trailer, of Michael Keaton running uh, in his underwear through Times Square um, in a scene where everything sort of comes to a head. The movie has, you know, I, it's theatricality, I think, opens a, a window for it to be as aggressive, almost hostile with its ideas and really beat you over the head with them. Um, it, I, I, I am attracted to this idea of trying to find everyone trying to find their own significance. He's struggling, you know, with the, the age old idea of like, you know, is, is there more integrity to doing a play than there is to just doing a blockbuster? Like who cares? Nobody like people on social media, which he's just exploring through his daughter is played by Emma Stone. Uh, you know, people are retweeting me like crazy, but all the people in my life who I love or who love me, uh, our relationships are, are, I'm failing them. And like, so what does it all matter if, uh, if you can't have that, what, what but he is doesn't it seem to be to... struggling with that. That's interesting because I think it touches on that, but it never really goes in one direction, like where redemption is or where understanding is or how to level out this anxiety. I don't really think Birdman goes far enough in any one direction. And I wish the Emma Stone part, especially had a little more depth to it, a little more going on. Yeah, um, I agree completely. And I, you really feel that. And this, I don't think saying this will give anything away, but the movie does decide that his relationship with Emma Stone is very important and it ends on on focusing on that thread. And it feels, the ending doesn't land for me because it feels kind of underdeveloped. Yeah, no, I would completely agree because they have this big moment in the middle of the movie where they're talking exactly what you mentioned. Uh, you know, all, all you kids today want to go viral. And you can just hear Inuratu yelling at, at young people on Twitter. <laughs> uh, and and I get that. I, I And you have to touch upon that in 2014 if you're talking about commerce versus art and staying relevant. You know, that's the big theme here. But I don't understand. There's no tenderness beyond that between him and his daughter. They don't really right. – find that they don't really butt heads in a real not a realistic way but in, in a way that evokes humanity or the struggles that real parents and children seem to go through yeah um, and she you know she deals with this drug habit and she's right out of rehab and she doesn't none of these people feel real but she feels less like a reflection of something important in his life than right. perhaps Edward Norton or Naomi Watts or some of the Andrew Riceboro as this other girl in the cast who right. is is kind of flingy girlfriend yeah, Andrew, uh, Edward Norton and Naomi Watts, of course, uh, reuniting that old painted veil magic. Uh, <laughs> love that movie. Anyway, there's – I mean I think what Patches is saying about how everyone is sort of playing a, a heightened archetype is, is true. Um, they – there is not – and that, there's some brouhaha about the theater critic character in the movie who – Alison Wilmore wrote, a, I think, a, a spot on piece about this on BuzzFeed, um, how she – tips the scales a little bit too far, the, this character, um, and seems a little bit there, – there's a nastiness and a lack of empathy about her depiction. Uh, but, you know, everyone everyone does feel like a projection of Riggins' character, and that is really the only way of justifying so much of what happens here. I do think that, you know, it, it, the line between what – the classic, classic battle between what the filmmaker is saying, you know, what the movie is telling you, does – Scorsese empathize with his actors and with his characters, etc. Uh, you know, when when they're railing against social media, and certainly, you know, in, in our line of work, I, I understand the argument that there is this false sense of uh, importance of having a voice of of whatever of being on 
social media and having a following. But uh, I, it does, and I think that this is emblematic of how uh, one-sided the film's approach to a number of issues are. It does discount that social media has very real and practical effects. I mean, it's like, yes, uh, social media will inflate my own sense of self knowing that you know, without it, I, I would never be able to reach so many people. But at the same time, it's through social media that I have gotten pretty much every job I've ever had and been able to uh, live a life. I've met so many amazing people, Matt Patches included. Uh, you know, like it's it's Aww. and so like I think that there's uh, there's a you know I think that you if you really have to sometimes bend over backwards to see things through Reagan's perspective and not see the movie itself as making very very uh, easy judgments about <laughs> the modern world. But, you know, for me, there's so much in this movie that I want to not like that really rubs me the wrong way. But for me, I felt a lot about this very similar to how I felt about Cloud Atlas, which is just that, you know, I think Cloud Atlas maybe holds together a little bit better, is like a little bit less noxious. But Birdman, it's the it's such a high-minded, go-for-broke, high-wire act as far as the technical exercise is concerned. It's so goofy. I can't help but be glad that it exists and want to champion it in some small way. I, I concur with that. Like People put themselves out there. I mean, Inuratu is putting himself out there by, by taking this approach to making this movie like Popcorn Entertainment but throwing in these existential lines. And I, I love Ed Norton in this movie yeah. and just Ed like is, how Ed zany he can be. And still he's, he's the most profound person in the movie to me as someone who wants to be high and mighty. He wants to be high brow and commit himself to that, but he's such a pain in the ass. He's such, he's a defeatist. He's the also end. the best written character. He's the only character like this. Well, the script was written by, uh, let's see. Four people, including four people. Right. I mean like the, the script. And both in the macro ways that we've discussed and also the micro ways, the little pithy exchanges that they have, it's just not sharp enough. Like you really wish that that like, you know, Tom Stoppard or yes, that's exactly Harold Pinter or someone like, you know, Harold Pinter was dead, but uh, who came in. Rose and, from and, the grave. Yeah. And, I have to write Birdman. And just gave this a pass, just like yeah. a Joss Whedon pass, you know, doctored it up a little bit. Um, it would have gone a long, long way. And uh, it's a it's a shame that the movie feels a few polishes away from from greatness. Um, and uh, you know, I, people went nuts for it when a lot of people did, and a lot of people will continue to go nuts for it. Uh, I, I my affection for it is a little bit more measured, but yeah. I I really I am glad that it exists. I will enjoy watching it again and really seeing finding my way negotiating through how much certain things irk me and what I can live without, how, can, how I can reconcile uh, the things that bother me about this movie with what I enjoy of its execution. Uh, yeah, I'm glad that it's out there. I Emma Stone, very big green eyes. Oh, my God. Do you think they're enhanced <laughs> digitally at all? Because that one scene where the camera's so close, I mean, I know what the fisheye kind of lens, a really wide lens can do to a close-up, but my God, her eyes... She should be in Tim Burton's big eyes. That's how yeah, big they are. They would have to shrink her eyes. I mean, it's uh, uh, she. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's. Uh, but I mean, I've, Emma Stone is a face that you know we're familiar with now. But it, the way that she's lit in this movie, and the way that she's dressed to sort of accentuate the the color of her eyes. It's you know, I'm not saying this necessarily in a, in a sexual way, but it's it's strikingly. <laughs> 
theatrical. I don't know. It's it's hard to it's hard to ignore one way or the other. It got to you. It got under <laughs> it your got skin. To me. It got some deep dark places. Uh, uh, and Zach Galifianakis is in it and does. Uh, he, was, he was funny. Everyone is very. He doesn't have. Good he's like he plays against type. He's playing like the rational one, but he doesn't really have the lines to back it up. Um, I think Edward Norton really walks away with it. Uh, Andrea Rizaboro is good. See, I really like Naomi Watts in this, too, as someone who is yeah. frail, like, as a, as a more human character to kind of foil against some of these more exaggerated people and someone who just wants to be a great actress, but she wants to keep her morals in check. And can you do that in this whirlwind of a theater experience? What about Keaton? What do, what do you think of Keaton? See, Keaton, is- I, I'm... <sighs> Keaton is someone you just want to put the camera on and follow around this. He probably does too much talking. Like, I wish he was having these superpowers and watching all these other people talk at him and kind of lose himself. He reminds me of Nicolas Cage in Adaptation in some ways. But instead of muttering into a tape recorder, he's watching everything unfold behind him and fall apart. Um, I think he ends up, or, or Inuratu ends up giving him too much to do in this movie in some way. We understand enough about him because of his career, because of these, this backstory that Michael Keaton has as an actor. Um, but he, he ends up derailing a little bit by when he goes dramatic. You know, there are scenes where he gets drunk and he's like suicidal and he's, or he's talking to the press or he has these heartfelt conversations with his ex-wife, Amy Ryan. That stuff kind of pushes him over the edge because it becomes too realistic. He's not falling into this fantasy world in the back of his mind. Um, they let him talk, and I think that works against him. Yeah, I got to say that I, you know, I, I've just never really understood the appeal of Michael Keaton as an actor. I mean, I, I think... I'm with you, and I've had so many sad conversations with people who love him. My old roommate loves Michael Keaton. So many like, arguments. I, there's, there's definitely a place in the world for every men, and he, uh, you know, other than like Beetlejuice, where he's uh, convinced, you know, does a very good job of being over the top. He, he's just like a dad. I don't know. I just see him, and I'm like, it's just a guy. And his uh, casting him as Batman has always sort of baffled me. Uh, but he's, yeah, I just, he just seems like such an ordinary, like it, it, I can't understand that he's an actor, that he is an actor of this degree of fame. It just seems very bizarre to me. And he, I, you know, he, he plays one of those roles where I would have maybe appreciated him even more if he was like a Harry Potter type of like that really passive lead who is just there as an audience proxy. Right. Um, you know, giving him a personality always rubs me weirdly, but, um. I think I am in the, in the same boat. Um, and, and just to wrap up here, I think your comparison to cloud Atlas is pretty on point and what happens to Birdman and why I still take visceral pleasure from it, but there's a disconnect that I can't kind of get over is I think cloud Atlas just uses its form, this really ambitious form to amplify its themes. It's as simple as that. They might not be that successful and they might be heavy handed at times, but the, the undertaking serves what they're trying to say. These big ideas. I don't, I just never felt that way about Birdman. As much as I love all the continuous shot stuff, the constant movement, this big, this bright palette, saturated colors and wide frames. Uh, it's beautiful, but it's not really, it doesn't seem to connect to whatever is this movie is trying to say. Mm. Yeah. Birdman. Birdman. We're going to be talking about it a lot. This picture, 2014. No, probably not.
I think that about wraps things up on this week. We wanted to mention a few more of the movies that come out before we say goodbye. David, you had some. Uh, yeah, Zachary Wygon is a, is a critic. Uh, he writes for Slant and the Village Voice. Uh, he has a movie that was at South By that I think is quite good called The Heart Machine uh, with John Gallagher Jr. and Caitlin Scheel, who both give excellent performances. It's sort of uh, the, the easiest way to sell it is to say that it's sort of the conversation meets the Skype generation with sort of a romantic bent. Uh, but I think it, it, it's a really compellingly compact story that more or less anybody in their, their 20s or 30s or should be able to, to relate to. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, you can look for a long. Uh, Patches, did you see this movie? I have not seen it. No. Uh, oh. I need to see it though because Zach is a is a college buddy. He, oh, there you uh, go. We were both in film school together, so I really need to see this one. I hope he gets famous so I can start name calling him. <laughs> uh, I have a long interview with him that uh, will be on Little White Lies. If you're hearing this on Friday today, it should be up on our Little White Lies site later today or tomorrow. Um, and the movie is on VOD. And if you're in New York, it's playing at the Cinema Village. Also opening today is a phenomenal film called Force Majeure. So good. Uh, that is really one of the best of the year. It is by Ruben Ostland. Uh, it, films I'm not that familiar with. Have you seen his previous films that are much more I, like, realistic and down and dirty? This, I mean, this is definitely his breakthrough. I think he's always been interested in, in playing you know, with a little bit of sort of cinematic violence, a sort of violent form. Uh, things like this from what I gather from reading about his other films which I have clearly not seen uh, Force Majeure is kind of like The Loneliest Planet which I you know not many people saw uh, as a mordant family comedy set at a ski resort in uh, Switzerland it's, it's it's so cynical it's so it's fine, so funny, droll so it's so good uh, really is this on VOD this film? Um, I don't think so right now, okay. but it's in limited. It'll, it'll roll out. Yeah, it's yeah. excellent. Um, and, and the last thing that I wanted to mention was, and you've seen this, John Wick, this new action movie by these two former stuntmen turned filmmakers. I think they met Keanu Reeves on the set of The Matrix, and now they're directing movies. And uh, I'm happy they're directing movies because I haven't had such fun at like just a good old-fashioned shoot 'em up in maybe since uh what was that Clive Owen shoot him up shoot <laughs> shoot him up <laughs> oh yeah shoot him up that's is a real it. piece of shit John Wick I, lo- is much, I loved much shoot him up oh man shoot him up has some some crazy I, come on when they're having sex and they're shooting all around the hotel room that's hilarious or when he has a baby in his hand he's shooting people come on it's great John Wick is a little more realistic in that but not too much it's still a gun fu movie if you will but not kind of crazy wireworks realism stuff. is not really a concern for John Wick it's about a guy no. played by Keanu Reeves who used to be like an, an enforcer for uh some mob or another. He who, works. For, he's part of some <laughs> secret assassin right. uh, society some, that uses bitcoins or something. <laughs> there is some strong world building in this movie for sure. But his wife dies, so and she she has gifted him a after dog her from death, the afterlife. Yeah, right. A beagle who is adorable. Anyway, is there a website that does that? Like, if you think you're going to die, can you set up a know. puppy delivery? That's uh, Theon Greyjoy kills his dog. Big mistake. You don't fuck with John Wick. You don't kill his dog. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Uh, 45 minutes of, you know, some of the best 
tactile action we've seen on screen in a very long time, followed by 45 very redundant minutes where the movie really stalls out. I'm but, okay uh, with the ending, a little more than you. This goes all the way for me, except for maybe the final beats, but by then it's pretty forgivable. This is a, a incredible action. I really enjoyed it. And I saw it alone because I think we sometimes get – like worried about – I think this played at Fantastic Fest, the place where everyone loves all the movies. Oh, my God. It's so crazy. It's so good um, because I saw it at midnight and they were all drunk. Mm-hmm. But I saw this movie in a theater with like five people and I was still kind of hooting and hollering at Keanu Reeves kicking ass who – he's 50 years old. And man, he's still – He has not aged a day. No, it is insane. He kicks ass. Uh, I look twice as old as he does. I just turned 30. Uh, oh, the God. And the other film – Coming out today that is uh, absolutely essential is Citizen Four by Laura Poitras, her documentary about Edward Snowden, which we have discussed in the past and a tidbit. Uh, but really, the the urgency of this doc and yes. and I think it's how how uh, it's really it's it's genuinely unmissable, regardless of how uh, you feel about Edward Snowden or how much uh, if you're someone like me who really had not engaged with the story in a meaningful way until seeing this movie. Uh, it will grip you regardless and, and cannot be missed. I thought you were going to recommend Exists. Uh, not so much. Oh. <laughs> Do not see Exists. I will leave people to read your review on The Dissolve for that yes. one. Thank you. Uh, well, that wraps things up on this week's review segment. Thanks, everyone, for listening. David, where, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on The Dissolve and The AV Club and Complex and other places and on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Criterion Corner. You didn't even shout out Little White Lies. Oh, then. shit. Yeah, sorry. Uh, and we have just been thinking about Little White Lies all day because <laughs> um, we just announced our latest issue. I'm the editor-at-large of Little White Lies magazine, and our latest issue, which we just announced, is sounds gimmicky, and it is, but it's in a really neat way. It's all about the films of 1994, but it is written – from the perspective of 1994 and we did all these interviews and wrote all these reviews uh, as if it were still November of 1994 and there are some very interesting results You're performing uh, yeah and it'll be uh, it'll be on sale in the next few weeks uh, at least in the UK and we'll get it over here as soon as we can and I'm Matt Patches I write all over the place and try and put everything on mattpatches.com my Tumblr and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches and until next week farewell farewell